Hey folks, Charles here. I wanted to talk to you briefly before the episode starts to remind everyone about the Graduate Research Network, GRN, at Computers and Writing Conference. At my first uh, Computers and Writing Conference, I wrote with my dissertation director to pick up uh, Michael Day and Janice Walker uh, to head over to ride to CW uh, before the GRN the next day. And, and then I, at my table leader at the GRN became a great friend and collaborator, Devin Ralston. At my second GRN, I met Noah Wason, and we've published two articles together since then. We were both graduate students at the time. If you're unsure about the GRN, maybe you haven't volunteered before, or you, maybe you feel like your project isn't developed enough, it's okay. You can still volunteer to mentor. Or you can bring your project and get feedback from leading scholars in the subfield of computers and writing. The GRN needs volunteers to serve as mentors. This is one of the most important and generative opportunities to serve our field. The GRN also has spots available for graduate students to present their works in progress. If you would like to volunteer to be a GRN mentor, or if you are a graduate student wishing to attend the GRN, reach out to Donnie Sackey at donnie.sackey at austin.utexas.edu. That's D-O-N-N-I-E dot S-A-C-K-E-Y at austin.utexas.edu. Welcome to episode 134 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Wendy Sierra and Kit Snyder, both from Texas Christian University. You'll hear more from Wendy and Kit in a bit. But first, I want to remind everyone that we are seeking nominations for our annual TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. The goal of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award is to highlight graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize of $100. There is award criteria. Uh, to be eligible for this award, nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, composition, communications, or a related field during the 2022-2023 academic year. Exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, composition, and communications classroom. Demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. Contribute to the development of the field through service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. And advance critical conversations in the disciplines through the publication of scholarship. This could be refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. 
to nominate someone for the award, please submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, a bio, and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the bio how you or your nominee meet the above criteria. Use the subject line Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 31st, 2023. Self-nominations are welcome. Previous nominees are encouraged to apply. For more information about the TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out to the Big Rhetorical Podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com or visit the Big Rhetorical Podcast website the big rhetorical podcast.weebly.com. Dr. Wendy Sierra is an assistant professor of game studies in the Honors College at Texas Christian University. She has a PhD in communication, rhetoric, and digital media from North Carolina State University. Her book, Todd Howard World Building in Tamriel and Beyond, dives into the concept of world building, a cornerstone of Howard's design perspective. While the book is driven by examples from Howard's over, the principles discussed therein, including unrealities, micro-narratives, and environmental design, are applicable to many contemporary games. Kit Snyder is a PhD student in rhetoric and composition and currently serves as the assistant director of the Center for Digital Expression. She studies fandom, video games, popular culture, authorship, and digital media composing. Her work often requires her to learn a new skill or technology, and she applies rhetorical theory to fandom objects she loves, like Lego Star Wars. I met Wendy and Kit at Computers in Writing 2022 at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I hope you enjoy the interview. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me what's your name, your title, and your institution, your role there. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I ask myself that every day. Who am I and what do I do? <laughs> so I am Wendy Sierra. I am an associate professor of game studies in the Honors College at Texas Christian University. Um, and that's a pretty cool position because it lets me revel in my interdisciplinary messiness um, in a way that's very fun. And you are joined with Kit. Kit, tell us a little bit about yourself, your name, and I know your title and your role at TCU. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Uh, so yeah, I'm Kit Snyder. Uh, I'm a fourth year uh, retcomp PhD student at uh, TCU. I actually just passed my exams last semester, so I'm working on my my prospectus now. Um, 
And I also work as the assistant director for the CDEX or Center for Digital Expression. So, so Wendy, how long have you been at TCU? This is the end of my third year, um, and I came in our Zoom year, so it doesn't feel like <laughs> it's been three years. But yeah. So you're at an honors college, and you talked a little bit about uh, the affordances of being in that role in that type of department, but I wonder if you could expand a little bit and talk about uh, the types of maybe courses that you get to teach in this role, and then also your experience and how this ties to administer being administrator of a game studies lab on campus. Yeah, so in the Honors College, we have faculty with all different backgrounds. And one of the cool things is um, when they did my hire, game studies was the area, but they they asked me how I would like to define my like professor of. And I was like, no, I think professor of game studies is awesome. I will happily take professor of game studies. Um, but we we really prize critical thinking experiential learning, engaged pedagogy. And so anything is a possible topic for an honors course, as long as you can hit those topics, which gives a lot of freedom to me to do things that I want. So most of my courses are some variation of games and uh, games and learning, games and representation, world building and games, video game history, um, I also do a course called Technological Dystopias, which um, I sort of have subtitled your Tuesday, Thursday existential crisis. We ask questions like, what is reality? What does it mean to be human? Do we live in a simulation? Would we even know if we did? Um, how, how do things have meaning if we don't know what's real? Uh, and we use video games and pop culture to explore that. Um, so, yeah, a lot of a lot of really, really fun classes. And it puts me in a place to sort of be a center for research on games. And this game lab um, is very new. We just had this building open January 23. So only only about three months ago. Um, But it's both a teaching space for me. So all of my classes are in there. And then it's also a space where we can make games accessible for students. So if you want to research a game on the Atari or you want to research a game on a PS3, right, um, we have systems and and we have the ability to get those games. So I'm, I'm hoping with this lab to really support and... Um, enliven more research on games across campus, not just in the Honors College. This is so cool. Um, I love the framework that the Honors College is working with. And I'm gonna press just a little bit for, so experiential learning, okay? So I guess I'm just gonna ask a question that sound naive, but like, what does that actually look like in game studies? And I think I know the answer to that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it looks like a whole bunch of different things. So I'll just talk briefly about some of the projects my students have done. Um, My favorite, in my video games and representation class, students studied native representation in games, which is, in general, awful. Um, 
Though, like, there are some exceptions that we'll chat about, but that's a sort of a good <laughs> assume bad. Uh, and we worked with the local National Video Game Museum, and my students were able to develop an exhibit for them. So they selected the materials, they thought about how to curate this, they thought about how to write the cards. Um, we really thought a lot about how can we have an exhibit on native representation in games that doesn't just reinforce tropes and stereotypes when that is most of what is in the game. So they did a, a lot of grappling with that issue, um, but put the exhibit together, selected the materials. Um, we did a lot of ordering off eBay. I got my card locked at one point because my, my credit card company was like, what are you doing? This isn't you. And I was like, no, no, I swear it's me. Um, yeah, and that exhibit is up and running in the museum now and it's gonna be up for about nine months. It's super cool. Um, I had students put together a symposium last semester on games and learning. So they identified topics under that big umbrella term that they were interested in. They invited a bunch of speakers and they had a little mini on-campus symposium with a keynote speaker. Um, yeah, so so I think that um, we've we've done some work with schools, like we've done some at not at TCU at my previous institution. Um, had students like basically run a little coding club for kids, where my students learned how to do block-based coding in Minecraft, and then they taught it to um, sixth graders. Right. So yeah, all, all kinds of opportunities for how you can do experiential learning with games. So I'm glad I asked because uh joke was on me. I actually had no, that was not, those were not the types of things I was thinking about. Uh, that's awesome. One last question about the game labs before I kind of turn to Kit and get you involved to her a little bit about your prospectus and how you came to TCU. Wendy, what are the like day-to-day -day things going on in the day in the game lab? Like you mentioned, you have all these systems, right? Do folks come and do research? Do, are there other student administrators? What is like the day-to-day -day happenings of this game studies lab? Yeah, we're kind of still trying to work that out because like I said, it's brand new. And so we're dealing with some logistics, really like basic stuff, right? Like the systems are locked up in a cabinet that's the same key that opens my office door. So if we give that key to my student worker, then she has the key to my office as well. Um, we have a student worker in there um, and she's there to kind of make sure that the lab is accessible to students when I'm not there. Uh, so far it has been mostly only my students coming into the space to use it. But I think that's partially because they're the only ones that know about it because it is so new, right? Uh, but I did, you know, just this week, I had a student that um, one of his friends had taken one of my previous classes and he had heard about me. Um, and so he came to interview me about if video games are art or not. Um, and I was able, like, we had a conversation, we chatted about some stuff, and then I was able to boot up some of the systems. Um, and we played through a little bit of stuff and talked about, like, you know, is Stardew Valley art? I would call Stardew Valley art, but um, what are some of the reasons why somebody might not call it art and how do we respond to that? So, yeah, it's been a, it's been fun. And it's also been interesting to think through um, 
some of the logistics about how to make it a hub for research. Um, I don't know. And like, you, we want it accessible to students, but we also want to keep it secure. It's attached to my office, right? Lots of logistics going on. Thanks for sharing a little bit about the Game Studies Lab. Yeah, you mentioned that you're a fourth year PhD candidate, right, at uh, at TCU. Um, are you from, how did you come to TCU? Are you from Texas? Are you originally from Fort Worth? Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey to TCU, and then we'll kind of pivot and talk a little bit about your prospectus. Um, yeah, so I'm from Houston, Texas. Uh, Honestly, um, my history with TCU goes back quite a while because I was an undergrad here uh, in the honors program that Dr. Sierra teaches in. Um, so I've gone through uh, those course, similar courses, um, nothing on game studies though, but as an undergrad, and then I came back to get my PhD because Fort Worth has kind of become home-ish to me, so... That's cool. So let's talk a little bit about your prospectus. Um, your you you mentioned earlier that you uh, exams are out of the way, and mm -hmm. uh, prospectus is uh, you're in the middle of that, or you're defending it, uh, or you have defended it, I guess. Uh, no, not quite. Okay, so almost a PhD candidate. We're, yeah, we're still we're drafting the prospectus. Drafting the prospectus. Drafting the prospectus is really a joy, should be a joyous time, <laughs> right? Right before the dissertation, <laughs> really lean into finding the joy in the prospectus. So tell us a little bit about your prospectus and what you're hoping to write about in your dissertation project. Um, so I am looking at, so I really like to take theory and apply it to like things that I love. Um, and so I'm taking a game that just recently came out with the complete collect with the the Skywalker saga. I'm taking uh, Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker saga, and I'm looking at that and seeing if I can place it in a canon. And what does that tell you about paratext, textuality, authorship, authority, all of those sort of things? Um, and so I'm taking a game that I've kind of grown up with, and I'm applying like these uh more text-based theories to it i guess what i'm saying okay so we're gonna have to talk a little bit about this because it's related to star wars and i think yeah. that you probably knew that was gonna come uh that was gonna happen but when you say canon do you mean you're trying to fit lego star wars into the star wars canon or into some sort of game studies canon uh, forgive my night for forgive me for being naive well, no, because that's like a really complex question. Like, it doesn't sound like it would be a complex question, but it, it ends up being one. Um, I'm trying specifically to fit it into the Star Wars canon uh, with the kind of acknowledgement that I will have to think through um, the Lego canon as well and the different forms that canon appear in. Um, canon is one of the terms that I'm going to be working with and hopefully defining a little. Uh, that's super cool so the reason i'm excited about this project is because i'm teaching a undergraduate research methods class 
and we're doing like English studies approach because I'm in an English studies program. And uh, there's this uh, one student who was talking last week, I think last class meeting actually, about he's interested, he's so interested in video games. Like I keep telling him like game studies is a thing, you know, game studies is a thing. And he was talking about he's interested in how like texts move across mediums like the, the last of, transmedia right the last of us and like how that became you know a video game that's the re- i guess that's the most popular recent example right how a video mm-hmm. game became a television show and I, that's what i was talking i was like people are studying this right and across the disciplines of, of english right or across the fields of english uh whether it's adapt through adaptation right or through game studies and popular media and uh, new media studies. And so I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm rambling because I'm excited about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have, I have a lot of thoughts about it. And so I may not be as articulate as I want to be. Um, but that's something that I enjoy as a teacher. I love getting to talk with my students and work with my students and be like, Hey, this piece of your cult, like of your culture or your, this, this thing that you're a fan of, it's worth looking at. It is not worthless. And I think like game, video games, things like that have in the past been treated as not being worthy of looked at or being worthy of being looked at uh, with that same kind of attention. And so um, that's the one thing like I strive as a teacher to always remind my students like, no, this game you're interested in, it's going to tell us something. Um, so as a, I, I will, we can move on and talk about the project you're really here to talk about. But as a non-gamer, I'm always kind of surprised when I connect with students through that through gaming. Uh, this student I've had for this student I'm referring to, I've had for two semesters in a row. And then the last semester, uh, they often wrote about Monster Hunter World, like all the time, and and it was a narrative. <laughs> It's like, I don't know. I'm like a semi-aficionado of Monster Hunter World after reading these essays. But it was so great because then I'm like, they taught me something because I, this is so lame. I understood the reference at the end of that new Kate Blanchett movie, Tar. It was just like all these Monster Hunter World references in this like, or, or at the end, in this like artsy, artsy film. You know what I mean? I'm like. This is what this is. This was great. Anyway, I'm off in love field here. Let me turn it back. <laughs> Let me turn it back to what we're actually here to talk about. And that's some of the work that um, you uh, are doing with Turtle Island uh, ideas. And I met you both at Computers in Writing uh, 2022 in Greenville. Um, okay. So we're at Computers and Writing, and Will Banks has convinced me to pull out the podcasting equipment and set up shop right there at the intro. And y'all walked by, and I said, hey, you want to be on a podcast? And you're both digital scholars, and you said yes. And we talked a little bit about this project. So let's back up a little bit and see what was the project that you took to Computers and Writing and then we'll back up a little bit and talk about why it's important, how it started, et cetera. So we were presenting with Michael DeAnda 
on um, digital archives uh, as activist tools. His work is really cool. Um, he's researching drag bingo and how that was um, a really important way for the gay community to do like caretaking during the AIDS epidemic. Um, so that was his project. And then our project we were presenting on Turtle Island Game Archive, um, which is the website that we've created and we're creating um, a resource for people interested in studying native representation in games. Um, so sharing some of the games that have native characters. Um, and this might jump the gun from one of your previous questions or one of your eventual questions, but my original idea for working on this actually came from when I was planning that museum project for my video game history class that I spoke about earlier. And everywhere I went and talked to people about that museum project, and I said, we wanna do an exhibit on native characters in games, over and over, the response I got from people was, I mean, are there any games with native characters? You know, so they just like, not even that they were aware um, that maybe there was poor representation or anything like that, but there were even questions about if there were enough games to have an exhibit on. And so it felt like a real, um, a real space where we could do some work and provide some information. And then again, with that idea that I was mentioning earlier of, you know, sort of trying to become a hub and a center for games research on campus, I thought this is an important tool that could help further people doing more research and writing and critical thinking about native representation in games. This is making me think a little bit about, um, or making me think about, uh, to go back to computers and writing, uh, Samantha Blackman's keynote, maybe in like 2017 or so, she was talking a bit about some things about this, I believe, at the at, at one of the keynote talks. Um, just trying to enter the conversation with my limited knowledge here. <laughs> um, Kit, can you tell us a little bit about um, why why is this work important? You know, I think that's a cliche question. It, it might it's a complex question that sounds simple to echo something that you mentioned earlier uh, or, or some wording you, you said earlier, but but why is this work uh, important uh, for our field and for wider audiences? I think that there is a, like a baseline importance that Wendy's already hit on, which is like, there is not enough of this representation as well as I think it's important because we are, we have this chance to uh, kind of curate this uh, this representation and to try to make sure that we're doing it in a way that doesn't, uh, you know, further do any further harm or damage to um, indigenous peoples. And um, so I think that's one and the probably the central um, importance for me. Uh, I also think that it's important to think through our methods and how our methods are kind of matching our goals. Um, as well as the ways we're composing. And so a lot of the, I've thought through a lot of the, like the, with, with Wendy's help, of course, a lot of the theory of what we're writing and how we're writing for the, the articles and things like that. And it's, again, it's taking theories that might be um, not as 
not as seen, not as studied, not as worked with, or in, inaccessible for something, for some other reason, and breaking it down and making it something that people can work with and kind of getting that tool. Wendy, what are your thoughts on the importance of projects like these? Uh, archival projects, projects that um, engage with with native representation, et cetera. Yeah, um, I so you mentioned two different ideas, archival projects and then native representation. I want to address those a little separately. Um, I think that in video game studies, the question of history is a big one um, because as pop culture artifacts, things aren't necessarily well um, preserved. Um, we're at a point now where the plastics are degrading on these consumer project uh, products that aren't meant to last. And there are lots of questions about what does it mean to archive a game? Do you just save the code? Is saving a video enough? Do you have to play it on the original controller? What do we do now that CRTVs aren't being made? Um, so I think preserving particularly some of the games that we're talking about that were potentially um, circulating in the public consciousness, but now have faded away um, and making sure that we don't lose a record of them is pretty important. So just, just for games alone, I think that um, there's lots of stuff about the importance of archival work um, and, and using that to preserve and be aware of the history. Um, and then for native representation, I think there are two angles that I would think about. I would think about the importance of native representation to native peoples and the importance of native representation to non-native peoples. Uh, for native people, we don't see ourselves in media very often. Uh, we are the most underrepresented group in film and in games. There's lots of research showing um, less than a tenth of a percentage of game characters are native. And that tracks with film and media. We're kind of in an interesting renaissance moment right now, I think, where you have um, Reservation Dogs, the Prey movie that just came out, um, that had a whole uh, native language version to it. Um, Rutherford Falls, right? There's there's a couple things going on in the cultural consciousness right now that are really positive. Um, but uh, by and large, there's a lack of seeing ourselves in media. There's a, a lack of seeing ourselves, particularly in contemporary media, right? So when you do see a native character in media, it's often historical. Um, and so I think archiving and shining some light on the kinds of representation that are out there also starts to make some of these issues more visible, right? Um, and my hope would be that you know, a, a grand goal from doing a project like this and some of the other work that I'm involved in would be eventually to create a space where more Native people could see themselves in the game industry and then could become game designers and could change the kinds of stories that we're seeing, right? Um, so that's importance for Native people. Uh, and then for non-Native peoples, I think that we just, we don't have a lot of really good education about Native people in America. 
I think that, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of K-12 teachers um, related to my other project, A Strong Fire, an educational game that I've made. And what I hear from them is essentially that they know that their materials are bad, but they're afraid of teaching the wrong thing, right? Um, so, so, uh, so then, you know, they kind of, they don't do anything or they do something that feels very safe. Um, and so we don't learn much about native peoples. And when we do learn about native peoples, it's through Pocahontas, right? Or, or dances with wolves, or, um, those are some really dated references through, you know, night wolf and mortal combat or through Redongahedon and, um, Assassin's Creed, right? So sadly, these games, which are often problematic, do end up doing some educational lift in how people think about Native peoples. And so that's something that I think we can start to address with the archive as well. We'll get back to the archive project and the and the database. But why are games, the in your, your all's, you know, expertise and expert opinion uh both of you why are games a valuable medium to do some of this work uh of as you said expanding education or um uh, i guess more representation um what do you all think about that my first instinct is to say it's because we care um we are fans of games, gaming, uh, as just as much as I mentioned that I'm a fan of Star Wars, and that kind of inspired my work. Um, I think that is one way in which uh, games become important to this project is because we do honestly um, care about them and we're interested in them. I think also there's, you know, there's been some research and studies about like um, what you experience in games, how games can evoke your emotion. Um, it's just a separate sort of modality that kind of involves a bunch of different experiences. And I think that's something that you maybe don't get as much. I, this is very hard for me to say, as someone who does multimodal composition, you don't get as much maybe in the other modes. <laughs> Because I immediately want to come up with like 10 other like exceptions to the rules. But I think they're they're unique in some ways as well as like just I'm going to go with we really care about them. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. And it sort of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Kit, about um, pop culture matters. The things that you're interested in matter. The things that you're passionate about matter. Um, and uh, for us, we're interested and passionate about gaming and lots of other people out there are too. Uh, I would, I would add, uh, you know, Kit was referencing like that experiential dimension and the importance of that. Um, and as you were talking about that, I was thinking I have a seven-year-old daughter and we sit down and we play games together. And that's one of our big activities. We're big into castle crashers right now. That's our game that we're playing. And, you know, when we sit down to play a game together, we're talking to each other, we're communicating with each other, we're interacting, we talk about the game later, we strategize. Sometimes she gets to tell me what to do if I'm doing something wrong. Sometimes I tell her what to do. Um, but the experience that we have together when playing a game 
is much more engaged than the experience that we have if we watch a film together, right? Um, or even more than like if I if I read a book to her. I think that there's something that really special that happens when you're sharing that experience. Um, and that's a cool possibility for a lot of um, really positive, like hopeful, you know, we just, we were just chatting at seas, right. Um, with that uh, theme of doing hope. And I was really thinking about like what it means to do hope in a game design and even around some things that are very heavy issues, you know, like we're talking about native representation in games. I still think the experiential dimension and the pro-social element creates lots of ways to do hope. So that's why I would say, I think that's why games. And if I may add on just a little bit more, because you, you kind of inspired. Um, I think also games have so many paratextual elements and they, they aren't just isolated. Um, you know, when we're talking about games and when you pointed this out with archiving games, like you're thinking through, um, you know, where are you playing it? What are you playing it on? As well as like, what images are you using to market the game? Who's on the cover? Um, whose music are you using? Like, there's just different things as well as like, you know, adaptations with uh, um, The Last of Us, which is what we mentioned earlier, uh, as well as transmedia properties with Lego Star Wars. Like they just kind of, they spread. Well, and and to take it back to the archive a little bit, one of the things that we've been thinking about is like, do we need the instruction manual? Do we need the box art, right? Are there things, particularly for some of these older games, sometimes that instruction manual is the only place a story is told. So to get any kind of context for the representation, you would have to be reading the instruction manual. Um, do we need game reviews from the time period? Do we need gameplay footage, right? Like, yeah, the way that they just kind of start to spin out um, into all sorts of other different media. Wendy, you gave us an idea of some of the genres there and some of the other things that you're looking at, thinking about curating. So I wonder if you could expand and tell us a little bit about uh, other things that you're hoping to include in the archive. What are the things that you're curating? How are you deciding? And that Kent, you mentioned some of the theoretical guiding uh, principles for how to go about doing this work earlier or that you're thinking about those. So like, what are the things that you're curating? How are you going about making decisions? Uh, and then ultimately, the next question is going to be, what is the ultimate goal or some of your goals with developing this project? Yeah, I think the answer to how are we making decisions is... Um, slowly, painfully, and repeatedly. That's probably um, <laughs> that's probably a fair way to say what it. a framework. <laughs> what a framework. <laughs> like any digital project, right? Um, well, I think in a first pass of the project, we had this idea that this would be a resource for students, teachers, and researchers. So if you want to research native representation in game, you can get an idea of the texts that you should be looking for um, 
if you want to teach about native representation, you can sort of browse what's out there. And so that idea of thinking about those academic users really guided the first iteration. And so we had some stuff about like, where is the, where's the native content in scare quotes, right? Like, um, is it embedded throughout the game? Is it just in one cutscene? Is it a main character? Is it an enemy? Um, uh, a brief summary of the game, some gameplay notes so that you know, is this a very long, complicated game that would probably be a bad idea to assign to students? Is it easy to find? Is it hard to find? That type of thing. And so we we did a first pass that way, and we wrote... Um, several different game articles. Um, and then we we just we had we had two ideas that we sort of kept going back and forth. Um, maybe maybe really just one idea. Like essentially we don't want to do people's homework for them. That's kind of a mantra that we've kept saying. So we didn't want to explicitly say, you know, Nightwolf in Mortal Kombat is bad representation. Rodon Gehenna and Assassin's Creed 3 is good representation, right? We we wanted to stay out of that so that people finding the site could just have the information and make their own decisions. But that felt very unsatisfying because we're seeing a lot of problematic stuff and we want a way to acknowledge that without again doing people's homework for them um and so we sort of went back to back to the idea of having a framework and we decided to draw upon um a couple uh native thinkers talking about digital media talking about teaching about culture and and use these as a framework to think about how we would decide what we would mention. Uh, and I'll, I'll let Kit talk about some of the other ones. The one that's really close to me is um, Carol Cornelius. She's my auntie. She's also Oneida. Um, and her culture-based framework, which she's talking about, if you were teaching about a native culture in a class, how would you do that? That's her angle. Um, but we thought her framework gave a great example of the types of things that we would want to mention if they were present or not present. So is the culture shown as dynamic? Is the culture shown as existing into the present? Is the culture's worldview shown? Are the people's daily lives shown? Um, and once we had that framework in mind, then we kind of shifted some of what we were writing about in the article because we were in these game articles because we were able to say you know like the people are only shown in contexts of combat there is no acknowledgement of their worldview and daily life which felt like we're still acknowledging what's in there without explicitly saying this is bad right um and so it it gave us a lens through which to look at these games um, do you want to add on to some of the other theories that we're we're using? Um, sure. Uh, I think one of the really cool things for me personally is we kind of started the second phase of like rethinking and revision uh, during my exams. And so a lot of these texts that we talk about, 
uh, like Cornelius is on my field list is, or was on my field list, was on my exam list. And so for me, it became very evident that if I was going to read these works, if I was going to work with these scholars in any sort of intellectual way, I needed to make sure that um, my own composition was reflecting that. And so that's one of the things like, that's why I really kind of sat down and thought through our methodology as well uh, with Wendy's help um, and recommendations, because she gave me quite a few books to figure out and uh, scholars to kind of look through. Um, and I think the framework that Cornelius brings is kind of our guiding, uh, kind of our guiding questions. Um, the template that I created literally has those questions on them and we kind of base it off of that. Uh, but we are thinking through um, archival work and archival scholars and all a bunch of things really. How do you hope uh, scholars, instructors, gamers, how do you hope people who, how do you hope people use your archive? Uh, For me personally, I really want uh, instructors to be able to use it to help teach these games in courses. Um, I would love for these games to be taught in courses that don't even necessarily deal with representation. Um, and so they become just like the, these themes become common things to think about that you don't need like a separate space to talk about uh, native representation in games. You just talk about it when you're talking about games. Um, so I'm hoping for instructors to be able to use it, but I'm also trying to keep in mind, like, I would love anybody who just kind of wanders in to be like, oh, thank you <laughs> and be able to use it. Yeah, I think we've done a couple things on the site that um, hopefully sort of direct your attention. Um, so the first one that you think about is um, we've got a bunch of tags in there. Uh, so you can look at games that have the indigenous language in the game um, or games that have an indigenous player character, games that have a named tribe versus an unnamed tribe, uh, games that have indigenous involvement in the game creation, right? So those tags in some ways, like they also direct you to the kinds of things that you should care about. Like, oh, I should care about if a game had indigenous consultation or involvement in the development or not. I should care if the indigenous language is in the game or not. Um, so we've got that tagging system. We're also trying to work on some um, sort of listicle type articles that might help direct people to specific things they wanna look at. So right now we've only got one of them written. It's four depictions of indigenous women in games. Um, but we're, we're thinking about more of those articles that would be a sort of like a guided tour. So maybe if you're, you know, you're teaching a class on gender and games, you want to look at the indigenous women. Um, again, my, my own game development work is on native language reclamation and games. Um, and so that like native language and games is particularly important to me. Um, but yeah, like I, I see those as the two primary ways that 
if you're here and you're not entirely sure what you're looking for, those would be good ways to go. Um, and then we do in all of the game articles, keep a section that talks about how to play, which I think is pretty important for uh, teachers specifically. So we've got a gameplay notes section that will tell you roughly how long a game is, how easy it is to play. You know, like you're not going to jump into Age of Empires 3 if you've never played a game before. Uh, but you could potentially jump into Never Alone if you haven't played a game before. Um, so thinking about those types of considerations and how that might limit or enable accessibility for a classroom use. What are you playing right now, Kit? Um, what game am I playing right now? Uh, Disney Dreamlight Valley. I'm a big farming sim girl, but I've also just started Stray. So I'm hoping to get some, get, get to put some time in on that game uh, later today. What about you, Wendy? What all are you playing right now? Yeah, so definitely Castle Crashers with the kid. That's the big family game right now. It's four player, so um, we can all sit down and do that together. There's there's a, a poop level where all the animals are scared and they poop. And like she's at the age where that is the pinnacle of humor. It doesn't get better than a cartoon deer pooping. That's That's magic. Um, <laughs> I was hoping to be playing the new Amnesia game, but they delayed it until May. Um, love, love some Amnesia games. So I think the last big thing I played was uh, Pokemon Violet over winter break. Um, smashed through that thing. I should Thanks. say, I also played all of the Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker yeah. saga. Oh, yeah. And the dissertation stuff. You did that as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I played that game a little. Putting in the work, putting in the hours. Uh, Wendy and Kit, it's been great to chat with you and learn more about your Turtle Island Archive, right? Turtle Island Game Archive. Game and Archive. I'll, I'll mention briefly, um, Turtle Island comes from... Um, the the Oneida creation story and a lot of native tribes have a very similar creation story. But um, so it's called Turtle Island Game Archive because America is Turtle Island, right? And so it's an archive of games about indigenous characters in North America. Where can folks find information on the archive, the developmental archive, or maybe if they are interested in game studies or uh, anything that we've talked about today, I guess, they can maybe reach out to you all. Yeah, at turtleislandgamearchive.com. Wait, oh goodness, .com, .org. .org. God, I got it on my own. Know your own URL, turtleislandgamearchive.org. Um, you could go check it out. We've got information on the mission methodology. I think we've got about 20 um, articles about games and we're working on adding more. So absolutely check those out. Um, just search Windy Sierra at TCU. You'll find me. By all means, shoot me an email address. Happy to chat. Love to talk. Uh, yeah, it's basically the same. Uh, you can also find me on the TCU site and send me an email. 
I would offer up my Twitter, but I'm like never on it. So <laughs> it's not a great method. I was going to say, never. I thought you were going to say you never do that. I was like, that's probably a good thing not to just start offering up your Twitter, your Twitter handle to people. Wendy and Kit, I hope that you have a wonderful afternoon, a great spring break, and maybe you get some time to get some gaming in uh, during the break. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thanks. Thank you. enjoyed my interview with Wendy and Kit. It's always so interesting to me how relationships evolve after you meet someone at a conference. I am so glad Wendy and Kit kept in touch after computers and writing and that we were able to collaborate on this podcast episode. They are doing incredibly intriguing, complex work, work that is, as you could probably tell, pushing the field in new directions. I really appreciate the time and care they took in talking about their work, its importance to the field, and larger implications for our society. Plus, I want to check out Wendy's Game Lab. Maybe I can make a trip over from Dallas to Fort Worth soon. I'll be back next week with another new interview on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapu, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Ketza.